The sudden switch from face-to-face -to, -face to remote instruction in response to the global COVID-19 pandemic caught many faculty, students, and colleges by surprise. Until a vaccine is available, regional or nationwide campus shutdowns may occur during the fall semester. In this episode, we discuss what faculty and institutions can do to help prepare for future transitions to remote learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Josh Eiler, the Director of Faculty Development and a lecturer in Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Mississippi. Josh is also the author of How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective Teaching. Welcome back, Josh. Thanks very much for having me. I hope you're both doing well. It's good to see you again. Our teas today are... I'm just drinking water today. <laughs> Hydrating. I have Lady Grey. And I have Irish breakfast tea today. Most of my teas are up in the office, safely locked away. <laughs> By contrast, I have a really good array, so I've been having a bigger selection since then. We've invited you here to talk about the situation we're now in. This is only the second time that Rebecca and I have been recording from different locations because of the social distancing that's taking place now, the second time during this event, at least. And we'd like to talk a little bit about that. In the last few weeks, most colleges throughout the country and much of the rest of the world have suddenly had faculty transition from their usual instruction to remote instruction with very little planning and prior notice, and many times for the very first time for faculty. How has this been going at the University of Mississippi? I think it's been going as best as can be expected. The faculty have really done heroic work. They've taken it very, very seriously and are really placing our students' well-being and welfare and learning at the center of the process. You know, it's hard to learn, and as true for me as anyone, it's hard to learn new modalities in such a short time. And they've all handled it with such grace that it's been really inspiring. And so we dealt with hiccups and technical difficulties and things along the way. And the scale of it with 800 faculty is pretty enormous, but it's gone relatively smoothly as far as that goes. I think our experience is about the same. And we have, I believe, about 800 faculty. And I've been really impressed with people who had never used Blackboard or Zoom or Collaborate or other tools to step up and learn that within a really short time. One thing that was somewhat fortunate is it hit right before our spring break, which gave people some time to not so much take a break, but to learn some new skills really, really quickly. And I've been really impressed with how they've stepped up. Yeah, me too. And I hear similar stories from across the country. I mean, in many ways, faculty were given zero time with very strict parameters. It reminds me of that scene in Apollo 13, where they have to take bits of things that are around the cabin and make the carbon monoxide filter. It's very, very similar, I think, in that faculty were given very strict parameters, in some ways, technological capacity and frameworks that they hadn't worked with before and said, okay, now we have to meet our students and help them through this crisis. And they've all handled it just so brilliantly, I think. 
as someone who's been sitting a little bit on the sidelines because I'm not teaching this semester, it's been really interesting to see faculty from across institutions and across departments working together to troubleshoot and help each other out. And the communities that have formed online of faculty across the country and across the world has been really impressive to me. It's sad that it took a pandemic for that to occur, but I hope that some of these communities will maintain. I do too. Yeah. And I've noticed that as well. I think the the community building has been an important element of this. I think where higher ed recognizes that we're all in this together and we're all in a very similar situation. So how can we work together to make this the best experience possible given the circumstances? There's that nationwide pandemic pedagogy Facebook group that I've seen lots of people have been joining. And our institution, Donna Steiner, created a local Facebook group for people to share issues and stories and so forth. And just this morning, someone asked how they can work without a document camera. And someone posted an image they found elsewhere of a document camera created by a smartphone wedged in between two cans of soup, (laughs) holding it in place above paper that then works through Zoom or some other application. It was impressive to see people coming up with interesting and creative (laughs) solutions, sort of like as you described in that Apollo situation. So what have been some of the most difficult transitions for faculty and for students as well that you've observed? Well, you know, the scale of this is one of the biggest obstacles across the university, helping folks, just that kind of scale. Within that, there are subsets of obstacles. So for example, My wife is in the art department, art and art history. She teaches drawing and 2D design. So that's a very difficult transition to make, much the same way that lab courses in sciences are hard to transition. So there have been very specific kinds of obstacles as well as just the mass transition to unfamiliar platforms that we were talking about a second ago. So some of those have been, I think, really tricky. For students, you know, I think students and faculty together are wrestling with the disruption, the emotional and psychological turmoil, a lot of the stress that comes along with all of this. I do think that students in particular are struggling with now taking five courses in an environment that they weren't expecting that are probably using different technological tools that the students may or may not be familiar with and navigating all the syllabus revisions and all of the workload revisions as well. And so it's a lot. And it's one of the reasons that I know that in our workshops that we were holding for faculty, we were strongly recommending asynchronous courses and asynchronous modes as the most equitable for students who were suddenly juggling all of those things together. Not to say that you couldn't have synchronous elements, but that those should probably be optional for the students who couldn't be at the same place at the same time. And so, yeah, they're juggling a lot. I think one thing that's been overlooked by a lot of faculty is actually the complexity of students learning so many different tools because faculty aren't using something consistent across classes. I think that learning curve is actually pretty substantial and can be really overwhelming, especially because a lot of faculty assume that students just by nature know how to use these digital technologies. But like all of us, if it's not something you haven't used before, aren't familiar with, especially in this way, using it as a learning tool, for example, then it's new. I think we make those assumptions too often about students and technology. And the best metaphor for this comes from Todd Zakrasik, who said, we all grow up in a world with cars, and yet we still have to learn how to use them. 
So just being in a world that has technology and having been in that world from birth does not mean that they don't need to learn how to use some of those tools. And so I think that's important. The other obstacle for faculty working remotely, we all were just talking about with partners and with children in the same house. And I think that there's a lot of work-life balance conversations right now, a lot of equity discussions. And I think that's really important on the faculty side as well that we think about. A great piece in the Chronicle about not buying into the over-productivity hype about this time. We need to take care of ourselves and our families and our students. And so that's a baseline that we hit that, that's good. That's productive and that's on target. There's so much that people are juggling right now. Yeah, I think that people who are in caregiving roles, whether they're parents or if they're caring for older parents or family members, are in that predicament of complete life work overhaul, upside down. And it's really challenging to balance all of those things, but then expecting to then do all kinds of extra productivity is crazy. And when you see things like that on social media, I'm thinking, what? I can get an hour and a half of work done. Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. I don't want to see what famous works were written during quarantine. I just want to get up in the morning and make it through the day. I was like, oh, I got to read one whole article today. That's huge. (laughs) Right, exactly. In my case, I thought the default option would be to move entirely remotely, but fortunately, we had a little bit of notice in my class, so I brought the issue up with my classes. And actually, they preferred, at least as an initial position, to continue meeting synchronously, and they stated they all had the technology. I said, if anyone has any barriers to let me know, and it will be optional, and there'll be other mechanisms if you can't. But one of the things that I know they were concerned with is, at least a couple of the students said, they chose to take face-to-face classes because they have tried distance learning and it didn't work well for them. And they preferred to maintain that type of consistency. And I said, we'll keep revisiting it. And I've been revisiting it at least once a week. And so far, that's what they want to do. But things may change if they start facing more barriers. But I am providing a mechanism for doing that. And I think it's important to see what your students would like too, and to work with something that works for everybody. Well, sure. And I think the most important thing that you just described about that plan was your communication with them. And so I know many folks who are teaching small seminar-based classes where they all as a community decided that they could meet synchronously. And that works as long as it continues to work. So I think that as long as there are ways for people to communicate that and they feel comfortable communicating that with faculty. On the other hand, the 200-person intro bio lectures is a little bit trickier. So yeah, I think it just as long as we allow students the flexibility, which you are doing, so I think that's great, then helping them to retain as much sense of normalcy of the learning environment as possible. Because you're all right, students didn't ask for this any more than we did. And many of them want to be together in the classroom talking about Shakespeare or learning about evolution. And it helped that they all had good broadband access and they all had devices that made it possible for them to maintain that sort of normalcy up to this point, at least. That is a relatively, well, it's not a new addition, but it's an issue about inclusive teaching that is getting a lot of spotlight for very good reason that many students can't access the internet in such a way to participate in synchronous courses and lots of other overlap between equity, class, and technology, I think, that are really important. And we may have let slip away from the conversation before this, but now is front and center for us to think about as a community. 
In terms of inclusivity, one of the things that I've been exploring that I was surprised about is accessibility, which is an area that I focus a lot of my own attention on in general. So I've been doing some analysis of some of the accessibility practices that we're doing, how to make sure that faculty are keeping up on these things. And so I was exploring a little bit what the student side of some of these experiences are like. I had just assumed, for example, as an instructor, because I've never been in the student seat of this particular thing, that the Blackboard app would have the same accessibility features as the Blackboard website, for example, and they don't. We might not know that students are relying on their phones, for example, to get more accessible materials. And if they use the website, they can get them. But if they use the app, they can't. And if they don't follow that, they don't know. Right. Accessibility is something that I've spent a lot of time with as well. And I do know that it often plays second fiddle in some of these conversations. And it's also having a spotlight cast on it right now. On Twitter, you initiated some conversations about how we plan for this. Should this continue into the summer and perhaps fall? You mentioned three scenarios. One is that we reopen, we go about business as usual sometime between now and the fall, and then we see spikes of it and things come back again. Or second one where we're sheltering in place or a third one, which is we go back to normal, which you note is probably the least likely of those scenarios at this point. I know a lot of people are desperately hoping that that's the case and deep down so am I, but I also know that it's much less realistic. And I'm certainly not a scientist, but I follow a lot of scientists. I read their work and I trust in what they're doing as experts. And so Most of the models show that because it's a seasonal disease, that even if we minimize the cases during this first wave, that it will spike again sometime in the fall or winter or both, which suggests that without knowing the intricacies that biologists know about that, it strikes me that higher ed desperately at this moment, as soon as possible, needs to just start planning for contingencies. What would our enterprise look like? in all those different scenarios. And so I think it ranges from planning for fully online courses from moment one for both the summer and the fall to planning face-to-face courses with contingency plans, solid, not the sudden emergency shift that we just did, but solid, well-developed contingency plans in the event that we need to resort to social distancing for some period of time. And there is some discussion of the possibility of localized intermittent social distancing. So the kinds of things, in other words, that would affect some colleges, but not others and at certain periods of time, and then that would flip-flop. And so the idea that you might be teaching in a classroom and then have a month where you're not, and then you have another month when you're in, that's fully possible given the range of different models that scientists have put out there. So I think without knowing what's going to happen, To really build a bright future for higher education, we need to have really well-developed plans for all the possibilities. I've been reading quite a bit about this, and there's some question about the seasonality of this, because one of the things that's happening is it's hitting the northern and southern hemisphere pretty much equally. So it doesn't seem to vary that much with temperature, as many other types of flu, for example, have varied. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of unknowns about this, but We should plan for contingencies now. What are some of the things that faculty can do to get ready for such eventualities in either the summer or the fall? Well, I think, and this is an important role that teaching centers and instructional designers can play too. One thing that should happen as soon as the semester ends is to really assess what worked and what didn't for their particular courses. 
I have a friend from Rice, and I saw that she was saying that she found this tool that works so well that even when she goes back to teaching normal face-to-face courses, she's still going to use it. That's really important information to know and to be thinking about. So assessing what worked and what didn't and building on the successes. I have another friend who's essentially doing mini podcast sessions for his students and then tying activities to him. So he's a tried and true medievalist, no technology for him, just recording his voice and then activities tied to it. And so something like that, assessing what really would work. And then since there's now time to plan, tying it to the most effective teaching strategies for these environments. So let's assess what you were most comfortable with and what really worked for you. And now let's add to the mix ways that you could more effectively design assignments and activities and other assessments utilizing those tools that work. It's got to be a very quick assessment of pros and cons and then proactive planning pedagogically. It seems to me then it would be really useful to be thinking about this now as a faculty member because you could be asking your students for their feedback on what's going on. And obviously you could be doing it now so that you could make some adjustments and things as the semester goes on, but also for future planning moving forward. Right. I think that's a really important component of this, hearing not so much what students felt about the teaching, because I also think faculty need a break on the normal evaluation structures that are in place. But I do feel faculty should be free to get whatever formative feedback they want about their teaching. But I do think that feedback at an institutional level from students about all the mechanics of all this, what worked, what didn't, what failed, what really flew under the radar as being a super successful tool, something like that, that's really important. And that can definitely help with the planning as well. So one thing that I was thinking in terms of having student voice involved, not just at the institutional level, but in your own classrooms might be about particular tools or what parts of the things that they did help them feel more part of a community or reasons why they might not have felt like they were a part of a community. Not really putting it on you as a teacher about like, what did I do well or not as a teacher, but rather what kinds of structures might work well in circumstances to help facilitate some of the things that we miss when we're not face-to-face. I think those are fantastic ideas. And This ties back into the teaching center conversation because I think that one way that we could help is to help faculty design those surveys. Some LMSs have a function where you can kind of load survey questions into a cloud and faculty can pull them out to build their own tool. So I think that kind of feedback is going to be critical and the teaching center can take some of the burden off of individual faculty by helping design some of those instruments or at least advise on ways to do it. Because I think an individual faculty member getting that feedback for him or herself is essential in this case. And that's separate from a kind of formal teaching evaluation or formalized summative feedback as well. What are some of the things that you're hoping as we plan for the future and we have time to actually plan for a circumstance like this moving forward that you hope teaching centers roll out that maybe they weren't able to roll out when there was such a time crunch? I think you sort of highlighted it a little while ago. I think that there's an open door for universal design for learning and accessibility in ways that are more holistic. So those conversations tend to be either very specific or isolated in different kinds of workshops. But here, I think you can lead with some of that and you can also lead with inclusive practices. 
And I think that that's kind of an open door for work that teaching centers can do. Not that there hasn't been interest or that that hasn't been happening, but given what we see and over the course of this crisis, we can now lead with those elements because it becomes clear how central they are to the work. I've said it a million times, it feels like over the last two weeks, that at the end of the semester, students aren't going to remember content as much as they are the community that you built and the care that you showed and the work that everyone did together. And so I think that that has helped to really frame some of these issues in a really important way. So I think that's certainly true. I also think that And I've experienced this myself, and I know that I hope it will continue, and I strongly believe that it will. A lot of this work for teaching and instructional design sometimes gets taken care of in silos in different corners of the university. And I know here, those get broken down completely. I was working with people I hadn't even met before, and I mean that seriously. I had not met them, and they are amazing, and we work together. We met at 7.45 in the morning during the transition week, and we met at 5.15 every night, and we're in constant communication in between there, and really deployed to prioritize the work that needed to be done that day. And that, I hope, is something that continues, that certainly different instructional designers and different folks within teaching centers have different areas of expertise, and so it can be kind of liaisons with STEM or humanities or whatever. But coming together and seeing it as one project, improving teaching and learning across all corners of higher ed, I hope that that continues. One of the things we've been doing is we've been having open office hours for faculty where we have people from many support areas all coming together. Rebecca and I have been there, as well as some other people working with us. Some people from our campus computer technology services have been there, and some of our instructional designers have been there. And when people have elaborate questions, we send them off into a breakout room where they work with someone over a longer period, and the others' shorter questions are answered by whoever is best suited to answer that particular question. That's been working really well, and it's been really nice to see that cooperation. Yeah, I completely agree. I think people are recognizing that teaching centers have a lot to offer in terms of thinking about policy as well. The pass-fail debate is a great example of this. On the surface, pass-fail is a policy issue that connects to the catalog and the handbook and lots of other things. But beneath that, there have to be people on campus who have an awareness of the research on emotions in learning, on how grades have an impact on learning, even in the best of circumstances, and related issues to that. And so I think teaching centers have gotten called on both to contribute to those conversations and even shape them at some universities as well. And I hope that that is a recognition for the work that teaching centers do that continues. Yeah, one of the other things that came up in the Twitter conversation that you started, Josh, was about the need for trauma-informed pedagogy moving forward related to this particular instance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'll admit right up front, I'm in no way an expert on that. I learned a lot from Karen Costa, who actually brought that up in that thread. And so she's taught me a lot. I think trauma-informed pedagogy is, if you imagine a Venn diagram, it's in the overlap between inclusive teaching and the way we understand that emotion affects cognition. And so it occupies that middle space in a really important way. Normally, when we talk about trauma-informed teaching, we're talking about developing teaching practices that would provide access to students in our classrooms who may have experienced trauma in the past. 
And content warnings or trigger warnings are the most visible elements of that conversation nationwide, but there are lots more. But here we are actually seeing not just nationwide, but worldwide trauma. And so now it's moved from, in fact, at least my hypothetically, I may have students in my class who have been affected by trauma. And so I should prepare for that to many, many students who we will see in our classrooms from this point forward will have experienced a global trauma that we need to now account for. So that moves beyond what we know genuinely helps decrease an emotional response. In the book that I wrote, I have a chapter on emotion, and there's a piece of that chapter that deals with what happens when our emotional responses surpass our ability to regulate them. And everything we know about cognition at that point is that it shuts down. And so we have to help students mitigate that response in order to get back to learning. So that's at the core of trauma-informed education. Empathy is at the core of that, but there's more specific things that those who do this work and write about trauma-informed pedagogy know with much more depth than I do, but creating space to make meaning from what is happening. One of the major tenets of trauma-informed pedagogy is that those who have experienced trauma can get caught up in a spiral of helplessness when confronted with the work ahead, in other words. So helping them process that, making meaning of what has happened globally rather than ignore it and building the meaning making into the work. Accessibility issues, understanding absences and understanding some difficulty with deadlines as the responses spike. So I would encourage folks to go out and look at the experts. I learned again from Karen Costa. She writes a lot about this, but The Body Keeps the Score as a book that I know a lot of folks who do this work really recommend, not strictly about teaching, but it's a very insightful book about what happens to a body that has experienced trauma. So that's definitely something to look into. But I guess the moral of the story here is we're going to have to be much more attuned to that work going forward. One strategy that a number of people have suggested is having a discussion forum or some form of reflection where students are able to share their thoughts and their reactions and their concerns. Do you think that would be helpful in this context? Yeah, I think so. But with a caveat that most faculty are not clinical psychologists. And so certainly reflection is a key principle of trauma-informed pedagogies, no doubt about it. I think working with folks who know this area of research in designing a reflection assignment is absolutely key because those of us who are not clinical psychologists would not be prepared for what could happen if we delve into that and then it opens the floodgates of emotional response that we are not ourselves trained to help mitigate. And so that can happen in any semester, in which case we work with folks to try and get students to the right resources. But in this particular case, we want to be careful about the construction of those assignments. Not that we shouldn't do them, but that we need to be attuned to that. And also to be aware of what types of support services are available on campus for those who are experiencing trauma and difficulties. I think that's very important to think about. I know my university has them up and running, but certainly not the same as it was. 
for students when they were on campus. So those folks are doing heroic work, but the situation has shaped that work in a very specific way. I think one thing that surfaced a lot in the conversations with our faculty anyways, and I think I've seen in other conversations that are more national and more global in nature, is so much more awareness of the basic needs of students not being met, food, shelter, et cetera, healthcare, and also the emotions that play into learning and really having to deal with the basic needs and basic emotional needs before getting to the work of learning. We're all now in this space trying to figure out what exactly that might mean in our individual classes or subject areas. I think it's something that we're all more aware of than we had been prior to this. Well, and I think that this situation has brought that to light in a way that once it's a part of the conversation, I don't think you can ever undo it. And so there have been folks who have been screaming this from the rafters for a very long time. Sarah Goldrick-Robb and the Hope Center and Jesse Stommel and so many people have been doing their part in calling attention to this. But now, I think you're absolutely right, Rebecca, that there's more widespread recognition, not just that those things are realities for our students, but that they have a significant impact on the work that students can do and the learning that can happen. And so marrying those two together has been critical, I think, both to help them over this obstacle. I'm hoping very hard that it continues to be a part of the way we see our work as teachers in the classroom, that this didn't just start happening in early March. It's always been a part of our students' experiences of education. And so we need to keep that at kind of the forefront of our minds. I think another thing that surfaced along these same lines that pandemic has caused us to confront is perhaps we all try to cram too much into our classes in the first place. <laughs> really thinking about how much content is there and what's absolutely necessary as we try to scale back and shift gears and things like that. I know that there's a lot of conversations about what can be edited or cut. And perhaps those were critical conversations that maybe should have happened previously, but are now happening out of necessity. I think what you just ended with there is exactly the point. And that many of those conversations, and you know, I've led course design institutes, and this is always something that we talk about, I even do an exercise about trimming content. But until it becomes an absolute necessity, it lives in a kind of theoretical space. Well, that's a great idea, but you know, I still had to teach Moby Dick. But now folks were faced with what is absolutely critical for students to know. And what can I dispense with in terms of supporting their learning? And so I think that, I hope, too, has a long-lasting effect. Many people have been teaching the same way for 20 or 30 years. But when faced with this, they've had to significantly revise what they were doing. Might this provide a nice opportunity for faculty to grow and expand their tool sets so that they can be more productive? You talked about that a little bit before, but maybe we should leave the conversation on the bright spot of, the opportunities this may present for the future in terms of faculty development and faculty discovering new ways to work with their students? Sure, I absolutely think so. There are tons of stories of folks who didn't know about something that existed, discovered it, and now are doing really fun things with it that are helping students. What I think we would envision, hopefully, is that folks would find things that they are really drawn to, that when they return to the teaching modalities that they're most traditionally teaching in, that they utilize those tools that they found that help their students to learn, that we can take lessons from this time. And that should be one of them, I think, that we can stretch our conception of what good teaching is 
or what can help us teach effectively and really think about that for all of our teaching purposes going forward. Do you think there's other big lessons from this that we can take forward to stay on more positive notes? The fact that we have placed students at the center of this conversation, I think, is an important lesson. And it's one that I hope higher ed doesn't forget. Also, something I said recently, but I want to echo here, is that the silos have really broken down in ways that are beneficial for higher ed. People who normally don't work together are working together and trying to craft the best possible way forward. And I think that that's an important lesson, too. I'm sure you both know this well, that making change in higher education is really hard. And often the most daunting prospect is that's the way things were always done. And that's a different office, right? That's a different silo that takes care of that. And both of those have kind of been fractured. The way things have always happened can no longer be because we are in a new reality and the silos just don't exist anymore. And so I hope that higher ed can take that lesson forward tear down some of those silos a little more permanently, perhaps. Right, right. Absolutely. And it's also showing just how permeable those boundaries were from the beginning, I think. One thing that's come up with some students and some faculty is a question of whether we might lose weather-related cancellations in the future. I know sometimes people get excited when there's a snow day or something similar, but (laughs) might this mean those days will disappear? Yeah, that's a hard one to say. I think that here's a likely outcome if we go all the way back to the planning scenario. A likely outcome, I would hope, in planning for contingencies is that folks are told to build their face-to-face courses with these kind of hybrid fallback models. And so going forward, it is possible that those will exist on a wide scale in higher ed. So if there is a snowstorm, faculty could get guidance just to kick those contingency plans into effect, or they may say that that's optional. When the snowpocalypse hit Northern Virginia a few years ago, I think that they all had to develop contingency plans because they were canceled for weeks at a time. And I know that when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, when I was at Rice, there was a lot of talk of alternate assignments, digital resources that we could find, so things like that. So this is something that I think individual campuses have been thinking about when the situations have arisen. And now we're talking about those decisions on a much wider scale. I am an optimist by nature. I wear rose-colored glasses. I freely admit that. But the fact that you have a school like Tulane, whose former president was writing in the Chronicle last week, that came back from Katrina and is a thriving university, we have institutions, even groups of institutions that have faced major crises before, and they have come out even stronger on the other side. If we continue to work together in higher education, we can have that same recovery on a broader scale. So the fact that these institutions have succeeded, that gives me a lot of hope, I think, for what we can do as a community and a recognition that this isn't the end or even the beginning of the end. It's a way of rethinking what we used to think of as normal and learning lessons that we can take forward. Sometimes it takes a big disruption like this for us to realize that we need to think in different ways. And that little boost in that direction isn't always a bad thing. As long as we capture those lessons and learn from them, I think that we can build a bright way forward, definitely. So I think then in terms of snow days, if they're going away, then we just need to make sure we build in rest days or something into our schedule moving forward. 
Well, I've worked almost exclusively in the South, so I haven't had a snow day since I was in high school, I think. But yes, I agree. We just really want just one. Do you have any other advice for our listeners? I just wish everyone luck. I mean, everyone's trying their hardest and working this out, and we're going to get through it. And we'll move into the next terms with clear eyes, I think, as to how to move forward. So we always end with a question, as you know, what's next? That's the most loaded question at this time, I think. I don't know, but what I hope is next is recovery and rebuilding. That's what I hope. Thank you. This was wonderful. And thank you for doing it on such short notice. No problem at all. I appreciate the invitation. I hope you both are well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Josh. This was a really good conversation and important one to have right now. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Savannah Norton.